great. Woo. Hey, it's been about eight weeks since I've had a chance to be up here and uh, really grateful to our elders just to kind of give me a break from uh, in this season. We actually, a really cool thing is going on right now in our church. Uh, we are growing in a great way and God is so good. Um, we've added three uh, staff members to our team in the past three months. Absolutely. It is, uh, uh, yeah, you should be clapping louder because we are so excited for that. It is uh, made things uh, just run more smoothly and fill some gaps that we've needed. And, and really, can I just say uh, before we start today, thank you uh, for you guys giving so generously uh, and making that possible as we grow and as our church has really uh, needed that. And, and we still have a couple needs. We're in the process right now of actually looking for an associate pastor to come on. And, uh, and so just thank you so much. Thanks for, for, for sacrificing, for being part of this. Uh, uh, Tori and I cannot tell you enough on behalf of all the elders here just how grateful we are. Uh, we're going to jump right in today. we got a lot to cover. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, pull it out. Uh, if you need a Bible, the ushers are going to be coming by here in a second. Just raise your hand high. Uh, no shame in that. Keep that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, please don't take it home if you're just going to throw it in the back of your car. <laughs> we would love to keep that. But if you want it, you can take it with you. Uh, and then also, just a heads up, uh, normally we have a Version Bible app uh, event that you can get on and follow the uh, notes on. Today we actually don't have that. It, it wasn't published on time, so I apologize for that for you. But you can follow up on the screen behind us here. Um, I got a question for you today. Today's the first day of Advent that we're diving into. Today's about hope. We're talking a little bit about hope today. And I'm, uh, I'm curious, uh, I love doing this every single year to figure out who has already on December 2nd uh, started Christmas shopping. Okay, okay. Who, that's weird. Y'all are like, be, this one's confident right here. She's like, I have. Who has not started Christmas shopping yet? All right, so we're about half and half. I'm, I'm in that boat myself. Um, yeah, it's one of those things, you know. Amazon's a great deal, and I love it. And uh, that's my Christmas shopping extent for the most part. But uh, we have this tradition in my house every single year on Christmas Eve. And I don't know if you have traditions yourself, but in our house, what we do uh, is that uh, on the, the night before Christmas, everybody gets to open one present. And so we, we gather around the tree. And I don't know if you're like me, ever since I was a kid, one of the things that uh, I had been doing was kind of scoping out the Christmas tree, you know, from like December 2nd to December 25th. And as they would, you know, my mom kind of caught on to this. And so she started putting out presents later and later. Uh, but then you, you, you kind of try to figure this out because you're like, man, what's the one thing I want to open up on Christmas Eve? And you're looking at all the sizes of the boxes. You're kind of just investigating it. And y'all are looking at me like y'all have never done this before. You know you have torn off a corner of the paper. Don't look at me like that. Y'all have torn off a corner of the paper to see, okay, what is this? What's in this box? And you kind of move things around and shake it around a little bit. And, uh, man, I got really good at this growing up. And uh, one year, I'm telling you, my reconnaissance, I thought, went really well. And uh, I, I had said to myself, I know what I want. And um, I don't remember the year this was because I feel older now, but uh, it's the year that Home Alone 2 came out. And... Uh, there was the talk boy that was the big, y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, the talk, the guys were like, yeah, girls like, what are you talking about? Uh, by the way, Home Alone 2 was better than Home Alone 1. Don't email me. I'm sorry. It was way better. You, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal, right? Okay, so he has the talk boy deal, and I wanted that thing. I wanted to be Macaulay Culkin. I wanted to catch the robbers at Christmas time and make sure uh, that I got them. And so I asked my parents for this, and I'm looking at all the boxes going, okay, I want to pick this thing out on December 24th. I'm going to get this thing. And I, 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 I'm telling you, I knew which box it was. I'm like, it has to be this. It's the right weight. It shakes. It makes the clunk sound. And so... My mom got really good, by the way. She knew I was, like, ripping off corners. And so she started, like, I mean, like, duct taping that thing. And just, I mean, it was 
perfect to the T. She was making sure I wasn't going to find out. And I uh, got to the night, and all the families gathered around the tree, and they're all hanging out. Everyone's opening their presents, and it gets to me. And I see that box, and I go for it. I grab it, and I'm excited. I'm like, I'm going to have this a night early. And I ripped that thing open, and in my hand was a Macy's box. (laughs) And I just started weeping (laughs) like a little girl. I was just like, (laughs) I was like bawling my eyes out. And my family's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm just crying. And my dad's got the video camera and he's recording. And so he's laughing hysterically at this. And the whole family's like, I'm just bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, I wanted the walkie talk. I wanted the talk boy. And I'm yelling this thing out loud to my parents. And I wanted the talk boy. I wanted the talk boy. And they're just saying, open the box. And they're just laughing hysterically. And I'm like, I don't want the Macy's box. I'm not opening the box. And I ripped this thing open. And as I rip it open, I open the box inside is the talk boy. (laughs) And my hope for what was wanted and what I desired was actually fulfilled because they really tried to trick me and put it into a clothing box. And by the way, every year now since then, they put my gifts into a clothing box (laughs) to mock me and make fun of me every single year. Why do I I do cry every single year still? (laughs) That's why I went to counseling for two years, repressed memories. I tell you that today because sometimes in life we have this hope. We, we get up our hopes for certain things, and we, we, we think that things are going to go a certain way, and, uh, and they don't go the way we think. But, but the problem is, is that oftentimes if you would just wait a little bit, if you would just go down the road a little bit further, if you would just trust the giver of the gifts, you know, that they have something for you, then maybe actually that thing is going to unfold a little bit differently than you actually expected it to happen. Maybe the reality is, is that you hope for things, and all the time we say, I hope for this, I hope for that, I hope for this, but what you don't realize, if you just wait a little longer, if you just go a little further, maybe that thing that you think is so terrible isn't actually as terrible as you thought it was. And that's the story today. That's really the book of Ruth, that if you wait a little longer, despite how everything looks, the best is actually yet to come. And that's hard to believe. I sat with a friend of mine who lost a son not long ago this week. And he and I were talking and we were talking about the difficulties of life. And how it just feels like everything's a beat down sometimes. And it feels like it's really difficult in this world to have hope sometimes. And I love this book that we're in today. Because this book is the grand picture. That God is working in your life. Even when you cannot see it. When it feels like he is silent, when it feels like you have no idea what is going on, God's working. It is the promise that he gives to us. And we've been in Ruth, and the story of Ruth is it says that it was at the time of the judges. Okay, so the backstory here is they're in a time and a land where it says that people did as they pleased. They went the way that they wanted to go. And there's a family, Naomi and Elimelech, and they are Israelites. They are God's people, and they leave Israel because there's a famine in the land and they are trying to find food I mean they're just trying to keep their family alive but they go to a place called Moab and Moab if you don't know in the scriptures is not a good place for the people of God to be Moab has been the enemy of ancient Israel in a lot of ways they actually were built out of an ancestral relationship not ancestral ancestral relationship Lot had sex with his daughter and had birthed uh, children and this is where the Moabites have come from 
And so, hello, if you're like, the Bible is not really all that interesting, I'm sorry, but you must not be reading what I'm reading. <laughs> it's fascinating in a lot of ways. And Naomi and her husband and their two boys, Malone and Chilean, they go to Moab. And right when they get there, her husband dies in a foreign land, in a place where they don't belong. He dies, and they're left with the boys. And if things couldn't get worse for Naomi, her boys end up actually marrying two Moabites. And they marry these women. And I'm not saying that that was a full bad thing because we've come to learn later that the character of some of these women are pretty incredible. But what we see is it's not the way that a mother maybe would have thought that her family was going to go. And this is what happens. Naomi goes through a really difficult time. I don't know if you can imagine. Some of you maybe have lost a loved one recently. But if you lose your husband and then your sons marry someone they're not supposed to be marrying and then both of them end up dying. And this all happens in chapter one. And she's left sitting in a foreign place with two women, who two daughters-in-laws. And she tells them, she says, you just need to go back to your land. I'm going back to Israel. I'm gonna go back home to where I belong. I've heard that the famine is gonna end. I heard that it's coming to a close. I'm going back. And one of them says, no, they say, we're gonna go with you. And she says, it's not wise for you. You won't be accepted really there is what she tells them. And she says, you need to stay. And one of them goes, you know what, that logically, that makes sense. I'm going to stay back here. And so Orpah stays back. But then the other one, Ruth, says, no, I'm going with you. You're a widow. You're alone. And I'm sticking close to you. Where you go, she says, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And we see her profess a faith in this God of Israel. And she travels back with Naomi, and that's where we pick up right here at the beginning of chapter 2. If you have the Bible, open it up. We're going to start in verse 1 here, and we're going to read through this. Now, here's the deal. We're going to do a little Bible study today, okay? So I need you to pay attention and to really lean into the text. If you don't have the text up, it will be on the screen right here. But I want you to see the words. I want you to see that I'm not making this up. I'm not just trying to create something for you today to try to lift your heart. I'm actually, I think God actually created something today to lift your heart. <laughs> and I want you to see what he has to say to you today, okay? We're in chapter 2. Here we go. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I love that name. Everybody just say, with us. Just say it loud and strong. Boaz. Boaz. Woo, y'all are good. I like it. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and she gleaned in a field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said, to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. And, Bo and Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, oh, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one or keep, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, 
Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, it has been fully told to me. And, ha- and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, who under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me You've spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some of the bread and dip your morsel into the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose again to glean, Boaz instructed his young men. He said, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also, Pull some out of the bundles for her. Leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epath of barley. And she took it up and went to the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and and she also brought out what she had left over from the food after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? (laughs) And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. The man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. And Ruth said, Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they finish the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. I love this. Praise be to God. I love this because at the end of chapter one, as you're getting into this chapter, it has been suffering, 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 suffering. And we go through seasons like that where it's like, dang, I've just been hit and hit and hit again. And I'm just, it's coming after me. And I love what the author is doing here. The author is brilliant. He is doing, he or she, we don't know if it's a he or she, they are writing in a way that they're trying to open up a little bit of glimmer of hope. They, they want to show you a little bit of the light in the crack, if you will. And so at the very end, if you look in chapter one, I want you to see the very end of this. In verse 22, check this out. After all of the, the deaths in the family, this is what it says. It says, so Naomi returned, in verse 22, chapter one, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, but by the way, I want you to notice this. They're going to point out how many times she's a foreigner or she's a Moabite. This woman is an immigrant, Okay, I'm not making a political statement today. I'm just telling you right now that God's eyes are on the immigrant. This is clear in this text. Over and over, Moabite and foreigner is listed over and over. We'll talk about that more in a second. And this is what it says. Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and check this out, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You can't read the word of God like it's a newspaper, friends. You've got to read the word of God like it's a movie script. 
you have got to put yourself in the feelings, in the place of the people. Now, I'm not saying that how you feel is how they feel, and that's truth. What I'm saying is you've got to live in the story. These people have had hurt after hurt and pain after pain, and all of a sudden there's a glimmer of hope, a light in the crack, if you will, and it says this, that they return to Bethlehem. The name of Bethlehem means house of bread. The house of bread that was under famine that went dry, they returned, and now they're back, and the basket is full, y'all. The basket is full, and not only that, it's barley harvest time. It's the beginning of the seasons, and they're going to have a chance to begin to take from the barley and begin to build back up, and God has begun to provide for them, okay? God does not forget you. God will provide for you hope. My question for you today, are you looking for it? Do you look at your life circumstances and are you so caught on the, the issues and the hardships and the things going on that you have missed that God is trying to whisper into your ear the hope? I, I think this is important. In my life, personally, um, I went through a season. Uh, after college, I got into the workforce and I began working in consulting. And I went through a season of pretty hard depression. And I... Uh, was in such a bad place, a friend of mine brought me a book, and um, ladies, maybe you have read it. It's a book called 1,000 Gifts. It's a lady named Ann Voskamp, and uh, she, they handed me this book, and I started reading this book, and Ann went through a pretty difficult time in life where she saw her sister get run over at a very young age. She went through some very difficult family situations, and she carried with her through the rest of her life some of the difficulties. And part of the, the story is that a friend of hers challenged her for her to start writing out a thousand gifts. The only challenge was if you start writing out a thousand things you're thankful for, thousands of the blessings that God, I want you to write a list, but you can't repeat one of them. And so she started writing this list out and I was encouraged by a friend of mine, maybe you should start writing your list and I'm telling you, it changed my mentality. It lifted me. I'm not saying it's the only thing that worked. It was part of the thing that worked, but God pulled me out and helped me starting to see the seemingly insignificant is actually a gift. It's a glimmer of hope. The things like, did you wake up this morning and realize that some of y'all are wearing some really nice clothes? <laughs> I see y'all. Y'all been shopping. You look good. <laughs> some of y'all woke up this morning driving a brand new car. And you got here and you didn't get in a car wreck and you have eyes to see and hands to drive the car. And you have a senses. And I had a mentor one time tell me that the moment you can go to the restroom and thank God is the moment that you realize that you actually are grateful for what he's given you. Because you have a health and a, and a system and a body that is working properly. There are people that don't have that. You're breathing today, and that in and of itself is a gift from God. And so what God is saying, look up to the hope. Look up to the things I'm providing to you. I'm trying to teach the guys I'm running with right now at UT, hey, look for the things you're thankful for. Declare them. Fight for them. We have a list on my phone right now with some of the guys back in Atlanta for some, for some dudes I used to uh, mentor. And every single day we send 15 things to each other. Why? Because we have to fight. It's a hard world, y'all. We've got to fight and look for the hope. You're either going to let this world run at you or you're going to run back at it with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So wake up tomorrow morning and ask him, where's my hope, God? What do I need to see? And this is what happens. They have a glimmer of hope, and as we enter into chapter 2, as we enter into the story, it says there's a relative of Naomi's, and it says what about him? What kind of man is he? What kind of man does it say he is? It's all right. You can talk back. What kind of man does it say he is? A worthy man. This is language in the Old Testament that's used of men who have gone to war. 
men of valor, men of strength. The problem is Boaz never went to war. He never went to war. And so you got to do a little more research and look into what does it mean by a worthy man. And when you look at the Hebrew language, what you begin to understand is that this man actually, it's really what it's trying to say is this man is a man of substance. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of character. He's got that strength from that inner life. And I love it because it's pointing out to us, and it's just this weird little interjection of one line about this man named Boaz. You're talking about Naomi, 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 and bam, we got one line about Boaz. And guess what? We shift right back to verse 2 into Ruth. And you're like, now what? Whoa, whoa, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Well, you're just going to tell me about Boaz and just run off like that? I was a film major at UT Austin, RTF, Hook'em Horns, there you go. Did nothing with my degree. Thank you, God, and thank you, my, and thank you to my father who paid for that. But in that, I did get to watch a lot of movies. And one thing I realized in those movies was I watched and learned from Alfred Hitchcock on how he used to create his movies. And one of the things that Alfred Hitchcock is known for was he would show you something and create tension with it. So he'd take a bomb, a ticking time bomb. He would show you the bomb. He would show someone take the bomb and set it the bomb, see the dynamite to the back of it, and he'd see you put it in the bag, and then you see them run off with the bag, put it in the back of a car, and the car would drive off. And then he would pull out, and he would zoom in, and he'd go right into the next scene. You're like, no, 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 no. Where did that bomb just go? And he would put it in the back of your mind and remember, hey, I'm going to come right back to that bomb. It's going to go off at some point. And you know what the author's trying to do? He's trying to tell you, whose man is this? Whose man is this? Who is this man? Who does he belong to? Who is his woman probably is what they're probably wanting to know. I want to know who this man of integrity is. And it goes, no, we're going to talk about Ruth real quick. And it says, Ruth, the Moabite, again, the foreigner, let me, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she says to her mother-in-law, hey, I got to go. Let me go. It, it looks like it's a statement. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's a question. She's asking her mother-in-law, can I go and try to find favor? Now, there's two things I want you to see here this morning. One of them about Ruth is uh, I want you to see about her circumstances. I want you to live in the story. Y'all, I want you to think about this. A widow, a woman who has not have kids, who is in a foreign land, who's with the wrong people, is probably not received very well by the majority of people of the place that she's in. She's probably not a virgin. So therefore, she's tainted and probably not very much wanted anymore. She's bankrupt. She's broke. She doesn't have any money. And her life is not going well. It is not going the way that she thought. And you think maybe that she woke up one morning while she's in Israel, in Bethlehem, and thinks to herself, did I make the right decision? Should I have come back here? And what you're going to see in Scripture is that this woman is holy. Y'all, she is a good friend. She is loyal. She works really hard. She is humble. She takes initiative. And she has an active faith, and she goes at it. And what we see right here is she's going at it. She's not going to sit around and let the world push her back. She's going to turn to her God, and what does she say? I shall find favor. She does not say, Lord, would you please bring me some favor? I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. This woman made a declarative statement. Let me go to the field, glean among the ears of grain, and whose sight I shall find favor. She says, I will find the favor. I will go look for it. I will go look for the hand of God. I trust in him. I will go after the hand of God. Some people say, man, oh God, it's going to get better. I know it's going to get better. 
And I'm not saying that it's okay that there are times and seasons that you've got to sit still for a little bit and maybe wait on the Lord. I think the story of Scripture, hello, the advent, the coming of the king is awaiting on the Lord. But there's also a reality. At some point, I've got to get up, ask and call upon God, and I've got to go out and get after it. You know what I mean? And this is what she's saying this morning. Some things are hard, but God's not going to fail me. I'm going to find my favor. I will find him. She's not denying how hard her circumstances is, but she trusts how good her God is. And she goes out, and Naomi, who knows what she's thinking, in a time, in a time where it says people do what they want, she's going to send a widowed orphan, a wi- I'm sorry, a widowed woman out into the fields by herself. She says, go, my daughter. I mean, I already lost my husband. I lost everything else. I mean, I have no other choice. Go, go, my daughter. And she sends her. And check this out. Look at verse 3, y'all. If you miss this, you probably miss the majority of the rest of Ruth. It says this in verse 3. So she set out, and she went, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. She just happened to come along that field, didn't she? She'd never seen Boaz before. She didn't know about Boaz. She's in a place where I'm sure there's fields all over the place. This is an agrarian society after all. And guess what happens? She happens to come upon it. Now, you probably are asking yourself, what do you mean she happens? Well, that verse, that word in the Hebrew right there is her chance chanced upon. Her chance chanced upon this field. What is going on here? You're like, God, wait a second. I didn't know God's about chances and luck. Another way of saying it, as her luck would have it, she showed up on this field. You see, the author is putting something in there to make a little humor out of this. He's trying to, hello, wake you up a little bit and go, there is nothing chance about this, that she's going to show up in a field for a guy who's going to provide for her. Oh, and by the way, he's a relative of the woman she's living with. He's saying this very clearly. It is purposeful, redundant device to draw to the nature of the unlikeliness this could ever happen. It's ironic. It is the author's way of saying that God is working in the undertones of this woman's life. He is working. Y'all, there are two ways that God will work, and he works in Scripture, and you see it, two main ways. One is the obvious way. One is the obvious, evident miracles. God parts a Red Sea. He raises a dead man. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He does the miraculous. And by the way, your pastors believe that still happens today. In fact, I just want to tell you that's happened in this church quite often. Healing. But there's another way. The other way is he works through his invisible hand of providence. An angel doesn't speak, but God provides through the circumstance. We believe God puts us in a place where we're supposed to be at the right time with the right people in the right situation. How many times have you ever said that, man, I was just in the right place at the right time? And we just give it up to chance. It was just chance. I was in the right place. We just happened to stumble upon something together. God is trying to tell you today, no, he is at work in the providence. He's at work in the little details of your life. You may not see him, but you know where you really see this? Is if you look backwards in your life right now. Look backwards. Look at your life and see the dots that are connected. Y'all, I'm standing here because one day, I, years ago, I was living in College Station. Yes, I know, the miracles do happen. The Lord, the Lord sent uh, a, a missionary to the, to the land to bring light to the darkness. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. 
Y'all think I can't ever get up here without making a joke about Aggies. I'm sorry. I lived for two years in College Station, and they ripped me up, okay? But I love y'all. But I was there, and I worked in a consulting firm, and I started out as an executive assistant to the president of the company. I was one of two. And I got to learn the company by following him around. And I was not in charge of his calendar. They wouldn't put uh, some fool like me in charge of that. But they put the other lady part of it. And one day I just happened to look at his calendar. And I saw on that calendar there was an appointment with a guy who I was, uh, who was very well known. And who was somebody who I admired deeply and had impacted my life from afar. And I saw this. And I went to him and I said, sir, is there any way I can come sit in on this meeting and just learn and hear and he said, absolutely, come on. Just as chance would have it, he would let me do it. And I got to share in that meeting how much this person impacted my life. And they gave me their card, and we started talking. And a year and a half later, I ended up working for this guy. And that guy ran a church, a very large church. And that guy ended up being the reason that I actually now am even standing here because he gave me a chance to work as a pastor in a church. And I'm now standing before you today because I happened to look at an appointment on a calendar for a guy who gave me a chance. Look at God. Won't he do it? And you know that's what it says. And you know that's what this scripture is all about. Won't he do it? That's exactly what's going on here. Proverbs 16.9 says, a man plans his way, but God directs his steps. And so when you say things like, it's, you know, it just happened to be this way, you are undermining the hand of God in your life. Don't undermine him. Give him the credit that the Lord is orchestrating these things together. And the spotlight shifts again. Man, we were only on verse 4, and we got 23 verses to go. <laughs> Guess what? I only got 45 minutes, so we might not finish all of this. But check this out. It says this in verse 4. And behold, Boaz. I love that so much. You know, in Scripture, when God says behold, he says, get your eyes on this real quick, y'all. Look at this real quick. He says, behold, Boaz came up from Bethlehem. And he wants you to shift back again with the spotlight to this man. And it's a dramatic shift. It's kind of like one of those moments the king comes out. And it's like, dun 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 Boaz. And you're looking at this man. And guess what we see about him? He is a phenomenal. Men, hear me. He is a phenomenal example of a single man of God. Okay, there are no perfect people in Scripture other than Jesus. Let me make that real clear. This man had shortcomings. And he had issues like all of us. But this man, you will see, as we look at this real quick, all of the great things about his life and who he is. A really cool fact about him, he was a strong man. He was a noble man. He's a man of character. We see that. But we read later on in Scripture, as Solomon builds a temple, one of the pillars in the temple of Solomon's temple, he put the name Boaz on. One of the few pillars, the main pillars. Why? Because this is a man who could carry a load. This is a man who could stand sturdy and strong at a time. And what we see immediately right away is this man was a kind man, and he was a godly man. You're like, how do you know that, Nick? Well, read the next verse. Glad you asked. The Lord be with you, he said to his workers. And the Lord bless you, they said back to him. How many of y'all rolled up to work recently, and your boss said, the Lord be with you? And you responded, and the Lord bless you too, brother. It's just not happening very often, y'all. Unless you're working for Chick-fil-A, God bless them. It is not occurring. I love this. His workers, his servants in the field look at this man and they see him and they, he has created a wonderful place for them to work that they would bless him as he comes in. And Boaz is a shepherd to his people. He, do you realize that maybe you 
are the only person, the closest thing to people in your office have to a pastor. Do you realize today that you might be the closest thing in your fraternity that that person has to a pastor? You might be the closest thing today where you are that those people have to a pastor. Y'all worry about trying to get them here to church. We're worried about telling you, understand you're in a ministry right now. Your office, your workspace, your neighborhood, it is your ministry. You don't need to get out of business to become a pastor. You're the closest thing those people have. And you need to find some honor in that. He asked the question, whose woman is this? I probably say that with a little bit of joking nature. I don't know if it was said that way. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I don't believe really much in this text at all. There's much about an attraction. We all kind of get the sense of where this thing's going, okay? I'm not going to break any uh, news for you here, what's going to happen, but there really isn't much of an, there's no evidence in this that there's an attraction between these two. There's no evidence in this that he has a thing for her. There really isn't. It, it's, it shows in the scripture right here, he just wants to know what family does she belong to? Where is she coming from? And I love it. Her, her reputation is made much of already because the servant, the main servant, verse 6, responds. He said, this is the Moabite woman. This is the one we heard about. This is the Moabite woman who came with Ruth, or came with Naomi back here. And I love that her reputation as a foreigner has already been known in the land that she's in. And that these servants said, this is the one we've heard about. She came back with the Israelite. She's not an Israelite. And her reputation is now known. And I love how he responds. He, the, the worker goes on to say, by the way, she's been working, verse 7, since early morning. She's a hard worker. He said that she came to them and asked, please let me glean here. She's humble. She doesn't demand a handout. She doesn't demand that they give her something. She doesn't think she's entitled to anything. She understands her position. And she asked. And she puts herself at the grace of these people. She's not pushy. She takes initiative. She's humble. She's a hard worker. Men, go and find yourself a woman like that. Single men, you're rolling up on all of these dating sites. I'm not against them. I'm for it. Look, I'm great. Make your intentions known on there. Find yourself a woman who's like this. Get to know the people around her. Hear her reputation. Ask her out. Hello? Is there any amens from the ladies in the audience today? I'm giving you your shot to shoot, okay? Ask her out, ladies. Give him his shot. <laughs> Don't make, y'all are scary. Look, I'm a single man, okay? I can say this today, right? Y'all are scary. If a man works up all the nerve inside of him to come ask you on a date, please be gracious enough to not ghost him. Hallelujah. <laughs> Pause, ladies. Men, don't text her to ask her out. So then she can't ghost you. Find yourself a woman like this. Find yourself a man like this. The author keeps showing us she is a foreigner. They keep saying it over and over. She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. And I love how he responds to her. He says, daughter. He comes up to her and says, daughter. Now, why would he say that? Man, this care of this man. We see later in the text, he's got women that already serve in these fields. And he's caring for these women. And it made me think of Jesus. You know, Jesus calls only one person in Scripture, daughter. It's a woman who shows up to him, and she's had 12 years of suffering, bleeding going on. And she has blood coming out of her. And in that culture, 
that means that nobody would touch her. Nobody would engage with her. Nobody would talk with her. You can read this story in Luke 8. And she comes up in her, out of desperation in a crowd of people where she wouldn't be seen. She comes up and she just thinks, maybe if I could just touch the end of his robe. I've heard about this man. I believe he can heal people. If I could just touch the edge of his robe, I'm just desperate. And she grabs the edge of his robe. And Jesus stops dead in his tracks. He says, the power has gone out of me. Some power has gone out of me. And you can just see her huddled in the crowd, just scared. Oh, God, please don't find me. But she knows the bleeding has stopped. And he looks at her and says, daughter. And he grabs her and he lifts her face. And he says, your faith has made you well. This is the beautiful picture here of a man who cares for a woman in need. Daughter, he says to her. And he tells her, listen to me. You don't glean in any other field, okay? You come to my field, you glean here, and you understand something. My men are going to protect you. My men are going to take care of you. And he tells her this. And this is all the things he says. I want just you to hear this. By the way, this man has a gift of hospitality. Let me tell you something real quick. A spiritual gift of hospitality is not that you can set up nice china and make nice little meals. All right? I love it. And look, I will come eat at your house if you do that. And you invite me. We're accepting invitations now for Christmas dinners, right, Tori? But the gift of hospitality is somebody who can be with somebody and make them feel comfortable despite the awkward situation. Someone that, some of y'all this morning I watched happen, Osagi, Luke, Rye, helping people walk in the door and telling them, welcome here today. I know that some of you in here today might be coming here for the very first time to our church, and it's a little uncomfortable to come to a bunch of people who are singing about a dead man who said he was raised. But they're making him feel a little comfortable. And this man is breaking down her walls. And I want you to see five other things about him real quick. we got to hurry. One, he offers her protection. He tells her no man will assault you, verse 9. By the way, this is the first, as far as I know, the first anti-sexual harassment policy ever implemented. I'm serious. This man put in a policy that his workers were not to harass this woman. By the way, what kind of man is this in the B.C. era that would do such a thing? Much less today. Verse number 2, he treats her as an equal. Verse 9, you see that he then tells her come and get some water from the well. From the, from, the, from the vessels, from the, from the water that the men have pulled. This was not common. A foreigner was the one in charge during this time to bring the water to the Israelites. And women were the ones that would draw for the men if there were no foreigners. And he says, now bypass all of that. Sit right here and drink my men's water. He treats her as an equal. Men, we need some men in this world. Come on, yes. We... <laughs> I get an extra minute for that, right? That was, okay, all right. That was awesome. He treats her as equals. We need men who will not just shave, boys who will just shave, but men who will stand up for women right now. Like, some of you college guys need to know, like, it's time to grow up. I love you, but you need to not let your friends talk about women that way. We need to change things right now. And it starts with us. Yes, you can clap for that. That's a worthy thing to clap for. And that was awkward. Okay. Either you got to do it or you don't. I don't pick one or the other people. Three, he's highly hospitable. He invites her to the table to eat with him. This is just, I, I mean, this is countercultural, y'all. He has, I mean, what the workers would feel when 
she sat down at the table with the worker men at noon break, and they eat together. And he doesn't just do that, but he serves her. Number, number four, I wrote, he goes further. He's counterculture. He serves her. In a patriarchal society, a man hands her. It says, look at this. It says, he passed her the roasted grain. He served her. And verse five, he's extraordinarily generous. Extraordinarily generous. This man goes above and beyond. If you keep reading down, and uh, not verse five, I'm sorry, number five, verse 15 and 16, he tells her, he tells his workers as they're getting out from work, he says, look, listen to me. Don't let her just glean on the edges of the field. The gleaning, by the way, I think I missed part of telling you this. Gleaning was where on the edges of the field, workers would leave their crop and people would pass by, poor people would pass by, and God who has a heart for the poor, demanded in his law that, that they would leave those things so that poor people who are traveling and passing by could grab off the edges of the field. He says, don't just let her glean off the edges. I want you to pull out some of the crop from the bundles, and I want you to put it on the ground so that she doesn't have to even pull it. And he says, let her, let her then come behind you and pick it up. And it was so much that you will see in verse 17, she had an epaph. That was enough for, we know this from 1 Samuel that was enough for 50 warriors in the army to eat. And this woman must have been strong, y'all. She was cross-fitting. Okay? Because it's about anywhere between 25 to 30 to 50 pounds. And she's carrying this thing all the way across back home. And she takes it back to Naomi. And I want to be clear again. There's no indication that this man has some sort of a desire to like date her or any sort of sexual like desire to be with her or relational romantic interest yet. It's not in the text. But what we see in the text is this question that she says, verse 10, check this out. She says, then she fell on her face and she said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you would take notice of me, a foreigner? It's like Psalm 8, 4, where the psalmist writes, who am I, O Lord? that you would be mindful of me. If you're not asking this question at this point in the text, I don't know where your mind is. Why is he doing this for her? And I think there's a lot of reasons. He tells her, he answers it, verse 11. One of the things he says is, look, I, he answered her, all I've done, all you've done for your mother-in-law, it's been told to me. He's heard about it. You left your land, you came here to this people that you didn't know, and he prays for her. He says, the Lord repay you and all you've done in a full reward under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She says, the Lord will repay you. I love that his prayer, by the way, he answers. The Lord repay you, that he would give you refuge. And then, by the way, he answers his own prayer. Hello, that's, sometimes we are the answer to our own prayers if we just do something about it. And he answers it. And I think the question still goes, is that really all the reason why, the only reason he helps her, her reputation, I actually think it's deeper than that, and I think it's the whole point of this text today. I'm not fully positive and sure, but enough to the point where I actually read this and came to the conclusion that, oh my gosh, this makes absolute perfect sense to me. If you know who Boaz is, if you flipped to Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to go there, but just listen real quick. If you flip to Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy in there of the story, the line, you know that thing you skip over every time you read the Gospels? <laughs> <laughs> There's a genealogy in there, and in it, it tells the lineage to the line, of, the line of David all the way to Jesus. 
And in this lineage, I want you to hear this. There's a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. You can read about her in Joshua before the time of the judges. She was a prostitute who God would work in and through, and he unfolded his redemptive plan for his people. And so she, Rahab, was at a time where the land was being invaded and being taken back, and she hid these men who were Israelites from their enemies. And when she met them, she told these men who were Israelites, she said to them, I know your God, I've heard of him. And I believe that he is the living God. She was not an Israelite. She was a foreigner. And she said, I know of your God and I believe in him and I'm going to therefore help you and hide you. I believe in what God is doing here. And and she hid these men and these men survived. And after these wars were won and the land was occupied by the Israelites, the scriptures say that Rahab lived among these people as a foreigner a former prostitute, and guess who she married? A man named Solomon. And guess what they had? A son. And guess what his name was? Ding, 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 ding. Boaz. Do you see? This man was no ordinary man. His story is what shaped his life and led him to a place that when a foreign woman in a destitute land comes to him, he is... God has prepared his heart to provide for her. He has readied him by his story and his circumstances to prepare him. It was no coincidence. He had been uniquely molded by his story to receive a foreign woman. And you know that his mama told him, hey, you look out for these women. I love it. God is amazing. The point of this message today is that God uses the circumstances in our life to shape us for the future, to be used by him providentially in the lives of other people. This is the story of Boaz. So what does that mean for you today? Another way of saying this, by the way, is that your mess right now could become your message if you let it. Another way of saying it, if you like that, the pain that you embrace now is a pathway to the purpose God has for you. And one of my friends says it this way when we were talking about it. He said, God uses what we think are the stains of our story for the fame of his glory. This is how God works, y'all. Do you see that he comes through in the circumstance? Do you see the God of the barley harvest? Do you see the God of the chance meeting, the God of the right field at the right time, the God of the favor, the God of the background of our stories, the God of the abundance, the God of the provision, the God of the breakthrough, the God of the hopeful ending? This is the God who's orchestrating every single thing in your life. And if you needed to hear today, entering into Advent season, God's working on your behalf right now. And if you needed to hear that today, I'm telling you that if you cannot see what God is doing, just wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. The definition of hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for certain things to happen. But I think it's false so short. Because hope needs a guarantor to be something that's actually substantial. And it needs a guarantor, one who's a trustworthy, one that can ensure that hope will not fail to be realized. And God, y'all, we got that guarantor. His name is Jesus. He is the one that Romans 5, 5 says he will not put us to shame. That we know that if we hope in him, the best possible outcome will come. Because he promises us in Romans 8, 28, it is not a cute coffee cup verse. It is the verse of a life of two women who are in the destitute, hardest times of their life. And God said, just wait. I'm working some things out for all of those of you who love me. And this new believer, Ruth, He's getting a real big picture of that. God gives hope to the hopeless, y'all. We are the foreigner. 
We are the abandoned. We are the desolate, needy, lost. And God came along and he said, I want to give you something. Life with me. I want to take you in, right your wrongs by paying the penalty that's due to you. And I want to give you my perfect life over your imperfect life. You don't have to be perfect anymore. You can take the gift of my son. And I will not, I'm not saying your life will be easier. In many ways, your life's going to be a lot more difficult. But he says, I will give you the life of my son. And I will pay the price on your behalf. This is the picture, y'all. Boaz. Boaz, our man, Boaz. He is the picture of Jesus. He is the one like Jesus, who took in under his wings. He is the one like Jesus who makes a place at his table. He is the one like Jesus who dines with us, fellowships with us, and brings us in. And nothing, y'all hear me, don't fall asleep yet. We're finishing. Nothing will keep you from his table if you are in Christ. No one can. He's working. He's working in your story. And we ought to ask the same question that Ruth does. Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes, God? If you sit on that question this week, I promise you, y'all, God will reveal to you just how much he loves you. It will drive you. It will drive the way you serve, treat your family, your coworkers. It will drive your generosity. It will drive your love for your kids. It will drive every single decision you make in your life. The way you talk about people, the way you give, serve in this church, in your work, in your neighborhood, it will drive you. This is the providential hand of God. Let's pray. Just with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if, if y'all don't mind just as much as you can, just sitting still for a second. The band's going to come up. I just want you to ask real quick today. God, would you show me how you're guiding with your hand in my life right now? God doesn't need your fancy words. All he needs is a heart that longs for him. And just ask him, Lord, would you show me in my heart, in my mind, give me glimpses this week of how you're guiding me, please. Lord, let that be fuel to my fire. And I pray, uh, for those of you in here that maybe you're a guest of somebody, for those of you who don't have a relationship with God, I just want to give you a chance to tell God today that you need him, that you tried to do life on your own, your own way, and that he actually has been there all along. Friend, he doesn't want you to clean yourself up today. He wants you to come to the table of plenty, the God who provides the abundance, the God who provides for you, and just surrender your life to him. He's not asking you to figure it all out, to get it all right. He's saying, come to me. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will make things work in your life for good. Just tell him that's all you got to say is I need you and I want you. Lord, we love you. Father, May we celebrate with joy for the hand that you've guided us our whole life and you will continue to guide us to the end of time. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen.